1: This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. A few months ago, I was sitting in a bar in the capital of Moldova, talking with a few locals, exchanging views on the state of the world. After a few too many drinks in this cold, dimly lit bar, we started to discuss some of the leaders of the world the good ones and the bad ones. It was later in the night my newly acquired friend Alex posed a question to the table. Who do we think was the most eccentric national leader in the world? Obviously the likes of Kim Jong-un of North Korea, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, and Victor Orban of Hungary all came up. But one leader stood above the rest. A leader who built gold statues of himself that rotate to face the sun. A leader that shoots targets while riding his bicycle a leader that raps with his sons on live television, a leader whose predecessor changed the names of the months to things like his mother's name, his name, and his favourite childhood pet. The leader we all came to agreement on was Gurbanguly Birdi Homenadov, president of the Central Asian Republic of Turkmenistan, a nation of vast contradictions, a nation with the fourth largest gas reserves in the world, but with incredibly poor citizens. A nation surrounded by war zones, but does everything in its power to remain neutral. A nation with one of the largest airports in the region, but with almost no tourists. A nation that, much like its rotating gold statues, is turning away from where the sun was and towards where the sun will be. This week, we look past the crazy stories we hear from the North Korea of Central Asia and look into the real, medium and long-term geopolitics of the nation of Turkmenistan. And to talk more about that, we turn to our first guest.
2: Part one, gas giant.
3: Turkmenistan is uh, one of the former 15 uh, constituent republics of the Soviet Union. It's all the way down the, uh, what was then south of the former Soviet Union or the Soviet Union uh, has a very long borders with Iran and Afghanistan so it's got about a thousand kilometers of border with Iran and another 800 with uh, uh, Afghanistan and then up to the north it's got Uzbekistan above it a very long border there and then a tiny bit of border with Kazakhstan so it's kind of tucked away in this little place I'm sure anybody who's ever looked at Afghanistan on the map has seen Turkmenistan but not even noticed it was there
1: Peter Leonard is a leading reporter on the Central Asian region and the editor of Eurasianet, one of the best sources for news on Central Asia and the Caucasus. And he joins us today.
3: A lot of desert, mostly desert, very dry. Um, got a bit of sea, inland sea, Caspian on the uh, western side of the country. Uh, pretty sparsely populated. Um, dry, with some mountains on the south, on the south but uh, generally a pretty kind of uh, hard scrabble sort of a terrain.
1: So during the Soviet era, Kazakhstan was very famous for its space program, and Ukraine was always a breadbasket for Russia. But what was Turkmenistan famous for?
3: To be honest, uh, I think even today, I think, or even people back in Soviet times, if you'd asked them about Turkmenistan, I think even a lot of Soviet citizens would have had a lot of trouble finding uh, the Turkmen SSR, as it would have been called then, uh, on the map. So uh, I don't think it was famous as such for anything i think if anything uh uh yeah it was was kind of famous for being pretty obscure it's a place where you get gas Uh, i mean in truth um you know, the country Turkmenistan, you know, was a was a sort of a Soviet concoction. I mean, there were many kind of tribal peoples living in this area, but there was never a country called Turkmenistan. Um, so really it was like many kind of territories in that part of the world was more or less a sort of a, a Soviet invention, really. I mean, not to say that, you know, there isn't such a thing as a, a Turkmen identity. That's certainly something that's sort of come into uh, being in the last few decades. But... Um, you know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's history is a recent one, I would say.
1: Turkmenistan is different in a lot of ways, really. When the Soviet Union collapsed, many of its republics like Ukraine and Armenia very quickly broke out into heavy fighting. But not Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan had a relatively peaceful transition out of the USSR, even keeping the same leader in place. Why was the transition so much easier for the Turkmen's compared to some of its neighbours?
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I think the one thing you have to take into consideration is all of the Central Asian republics, I think, were taken very much by surprise by the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think, if anything, they were very um, content with things as they were. It's something that you find when you... um, travel to Central Asia and speak to people who've you know lived through the sixties and seventies and eighties, is that actually they consider often the latter part of the Soviet era actually a time of, you know, great prosperity and progress. I mean if you go to especially rural areas, you know, it was the seventies and maybe in some cases even, even later than that, that they first had things like telephones in their homes or maybe in some and places even electricity right um and 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 i just say that by way of explaining that um you know the 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 soviet kind of legacy in central asia and turkmenistan was obviously a mixed one like it was for everywhere but the 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 latter part of of the soviet experience was is perhaps seen not as negatively as as it was in, in other parts and so in that in that sense um you know although there was a little kind of some rumblings of unrest i wouldn't say you saw quite as much kind of of this sort of striving for independence as you saw even in other parts of central asia like kazakhstan um i think and then another important thing is that the the dictatorship that eventually took hold in turkmenistan took hold very quickly indeed, really. I mean, even before the Soviet Union had collapsed, when sort of some very sort of, let's say primitive form of of democratic um, structures were coming into shape in the Soviet Union, even before the collapse of the Soviet Union, even by that time, you know figures like uh Sopar Murat Niazov, the first president of Turkmenistan you know had already been uh, sort of um, sort of enshrined as kind of de facto sort of potentate of that republic and so that that politically speaking the transition was relatively smooth for people like that. And then when independence came along, uh, you know, there were kind of elections organized shortly after in which, you know, he won with these kind of comical Saddam Hussein style kind of 99% uh, uh, of the of the vote.
1: And it really was a personality cult. He erected statues of himself throughout the country. He put his face on every government building and a large amount of household items like vodka all had his face on them. He even renamed himself Bashi. Which means the leader of the Turkmen. How did this sort of leader worship come along?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, there was definitely a breaking moment, uh, some point in the nineties, in which you know he went from being a sort of a, a run-of-the-mill sort of you know petty dictator to suddenly transforming into something a little um more exotic let's say um i i think it's very difficult and quite foolhardy to venture too much sort of um uh, armchair uh psychology with this sort of thing um but it is tempting right i mean you know, evidently he had this kind of megalomaniacal personality although you know before he was the kind of uncontested dictator of that country it does not appear that he was an especially uh exceptional figure or charismatic i mean these people were put in charge of the republics back in the soviet days not because they were very strong and charismatic figures but quite the contrary because they were kind of malleable and, and just generally you know didn't have too much of a mind of their own i i i, I so weirdly i think sometimes in these cases i think it's a little bit of insecurity almost sort of you, you you kind of overcompensate uh by striving to make yourself the uncontested and absolutely you know not not just the uncontested, uncontested leader but almost as though you're kind of chosen by god because that gives you a kind of you know a legitimacy that can't be questioned when it seems almost like you're kind of the the ordained kind of uh tyrant of, of this particular uh,
1: country. So Turkmenbashi died quite suddenly in 2006 with the leadership passing over his son and instead going to a former dentist and now current president Gurbanguly Berti So why would Turkmenbashi leave the reins of Turkmenistan, the fourth largest gas reserves in the world, to a man with practically no real leadership experience?
3: He was by no means a healthy man. He was, by all accounts, a, uh, a kind of sybaritic personality, a heavy drinker, and, and uh, lived very unhealthily. But of course, when you are a kind of an uncontested. Um, you know, dictator of your country. Uh, one thing that never happens is that you, you never have people tell you to, you know, maybe cut back on the cigars or, you know, drink less or, you know, live a bit healthily or maybe do do more uh, sit-ups or whatever. Um, so, you know, I'm sure he just kind of lived um, as widely as he felt suitable and then just suddenly dropped dead all of a sudden in uh, 2006. Um and you know i I, i'm sure he he must have imagined he had a a long life ahead of him and he didn't really give a great deal of thought to succession the man who did eventually go on to be his president there's no strong indication that he was uh picked out by niazov um, ahead of time Uh, that seems to have been something that happened after niazov died so um in that sense um I would say, again, uh, my very long answer um, could be, I think, summarized much more briefly in that he didn't pick a successor because he evidently never kind of considered the importance of it and never kind of perhaps in his um, sort of extremes of delusion, never really um, properly sort of counted for the fact that he might one day not be around.
1: So here in the West, we may know Bernie Komenadov from his outlandish acts, like riding bicycles while shooting targets, lifting a solid gold barbell above his head whilst he administers clap for minutes at a time, and singing rap songs with his grandsons on national TV. I mean, I understand why other leaders like Vladimir Putin do odd things like riding shirtless with a horse. I mean, it's to show that he's healthy and he'll be around for a long time, so feel free to invest long-term in Russia. But what does Bernie (laughs) Khamenidov actually gain from doing these frankly quite peculiar acts
3: so Niazov dies all of a sudden um, and uh, you know we're not privy to exactly what went on behind the scenes but it does seem as though there was a bit of a kind of a a kind of elite stitch-up, and they put forward this guy who was a very unexceptional, very dull, kind of, you know, a blink and miss him kind of figure. He was the former health minister. So they put this guy forward, and I think at the time when he first became president, I think um, it it was pretty much, it was, I think, quite a widely held view, maybe not consensus, that they sort of picked him because he was this sort of weak, malleable figure that maybe there were kind of elite insiders behind the scenes sort of uh pulling the strings and you know I, i've seen this guy up close and i remember i went to Turkmenistan maybe a couple of years after he was elected president and sure enough like he isn't this particularly impressive figure but I, but i'll tell you one thing that i remember really stayed with me was that I was at this event, it was the opening of a hotel and, and, uh, and we had to stand out in the sun for about three hours because they always do this, these events before the president arrives. And I remember as he arrived, he pulls up outside, he, he steps outside his car and starts kind of walking up this row of all of these local people have all been kind of assembled to come and applaud for him. And people, as soon as he would walk past you, people would start applauding. But the moment he kind of went, uh, you know, 10 feet past like you'd stop applauding now when you watch uh, north korean tv the thing you notice is I, I definitely get the sense of like this this is a kind of a, a level of adulation which is you know i'm not saying it's sincere but it's you know they really go for it in Turkmenistan I remember it really stayed with me that because I, I thought you know people get it they get that this guy's basically a bit of a buffoon i mean they might respect him on some level but they can see right that this is not some a form of dictatorship where people kind of totally absorbed that kind of uh you know his authority and yet with time as the years pass he becomes more sort of confident and so i don't know i think this is we sometimes have it back to front with these sort of weird sort of dictators i think what actually happens is that they they, they can sometimes be these quite meek personalities and by virtue of everyone telling them how great they are, and and sort of and creating all this kind of facade of of uh, of, of adulation around them, they suddenly believing them start believing their own height. And so, after a number of years, you know, five or six years, he, he suddenly becomes this much more sort of confident, swaggering figure. And yeah, then sure enough, he he starts pulling all of these Putin-type stunts. And uh, I mean, the one that comes to my mind is was a time when he was opening a. Uh, a hospital and he turned up and performed an operation. Uh, he removed a tumor from uh, a patient's Here, you know, he's a dentist, he's not he has no training to be removing anyone's tumors. Um, and, and other times he's ridden horses and driven cars and, and done all of these sorts of silly things. And, and the function is, I think, very similar to uh, Putin, uh, which is the idea is he's a man of action, he's capable he's strong he's virile he's, he's clever he's all of these things partly because those are all the things that a leader should be partly i think part of the thinking is with the previous president he was this kind of uh fat clearly very unhealthy lump and i think that they kind of like the idea of projecting the new president as being dynamic and hands-on um and so i think that is a very important aspect of, of that sort of uh, um sort of rather eccentric. Uh, It's not even a cult of personality. It's this kind of cult of a man of action.
1: So Turkmenistan has an immense amount of natural gas, with levels to almost rival giants like Qatar. However, the average Turkmen earns just one-sixth of what the average Qatari earns. Why is the average wage so different between these two gas giants?
3: Um, Corruption. Uh, It's pretty... uh, Brief answer, really. I mean, uh, until, um, well, as long as Niazov was alive, um, the gas that uh, Turkmenistan sold, um, uh, the revenues were handled in, you know, God only knows how. Um, Primarily, we suppose sort of salted away in uh, bank accounts um, in Europe. Um, and when the, his successor came to power and Burdi Mohamedov came to power, uh, I think one of the first things that the government started to do was to kind of start rooting around these foreign bank accounts and try and kind of claw some of this money back. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of are rather optimistic and naive people, and I include myself in those ranks, I think thought, well, maybe, you know, the sort of revenues will be handled more responsibly or more transparently, um, but that does not appear to have happened. Um, it's a country that's, you know, has obviously no uh, uh, democratic accountability to speak of. The money gets spent not on improving people's welfare by and large, but on building, you know, this kind of insane kind of uh, Alice in Wonderland, a capital city all built in gleaming marble, you know, whilst, you know, you go outside the capital and, yeah, as you've said, people, uh, you know, live in pretty um, abject um conditions by and large uh public infrastructure is poor um yeah i mean it's you know the the short answer is uh the priorities are all wrong i think um uh, for reasons best known to themselves the national leadership of this country feels that um projecting this sort of you know, um, Ottoman splendor is uh, more important than raising the quality of life of its own people.
1: Turkmenistan, like many other resource states, tied itself very closely into its gas exports, with gas sales now making up over 70% of the country's GDP. But now, with Moscow and Riyadh's oil price war, the price of gas is plummeting. Because of this, the Turkmen economy is nosediving and we're seeing the first large-scale protests in the country since the end of the Soviet Union. But what do you think this means for Turkmenistan?
3: There are some people who anticipate kind of an imminent sort of uh, uh, dissolving of the country that will kind of fall apart under the weight of bad government and uh, intensifying poverty. Um, I'm a little bit more sanguine about it in the sense that um, I think that, yes, you will see Things like what you're alluding to, large groups of angry villagers coming out and blocking roads and kind of, you know, grabbing local uh, officials by the lapels and, you know, and and demanding explanations. Um, I think that that's likely to happen. And that's what always happens when uh, resources are short. I'm very skeptical about it actually escalating into a kind of a a threat to the system because there's... Mm -hmm. You know, goes without saying. I think by this point that there's nothing resembling a political opposition inside the country. In fact, there's not even much of an opposition outside the country, too, to be told, because the exiled opponents are all kind of squabble among themselves and, and have kind of absolutely zero visibility, um, and you know have not been very skillful and kind of uh, you know nurturing any kind of authority for themselves among the um, kind of expatriate uh, Turkmen population. So I think that um, what you're likely to see if the economy does indeed take more of a nosedive uh, than it's doing at the moment, you're going to see a lot more of these kind of isolated uh, incidents. My opinion is, though, that it will not um, translate into an actual threat to the system this sort of the moral of experiences like ukraine for example um have definitely been uh absorbed by many countries in the former of soviet union um in a way that makes them kind of very weary uh, wary and, and cautious about you know kind of It'll take a lot before they come out protesting because I think that they they very much uh, link protesting to you know the, the potential of kind of collapse and sort of political chaos. Uh, you know, there's always a little bit of. Um, uh, very sort of subtle signaling I think in even in, in state news about um, the risks of kind of uh, raising your head and causing trouble I mean the implication is always do it and uh, and, and you know the current collapse of the country will duly follow.
1: Turkmenistan is a real oddity in the region alliance wise as well, famously being as neutral as possible. It's not a part of the Moscow- led CIS or the Beijing-led Shanghai Cooperation Group. It even has a huge monument to neutrality in the capital, Ashgabat. Why is Turkmenistan so set on being a neutral country?
3: i think um it's very easy to sort of mock them for that sort of thing and it makes them seem even more kind of like the kid in the corner and, and uh, these sort of weird loners but i i think in, in fairness to them it, you know again just to go back to what i was saying in the beginning look, look at where, where they are on the map you know they're two mm, kind of the two neighbors with the longest borders maybe not the longest borders, but with the very long borders, Iran and Afghanistan. I mean, this is in 1991 when that uh, when uh, Turkmenistan became uh, an independent country. You had Afghanistan, which already was, you know, well into decades of this kind of civil war, um, you know, whatever you want to call what was happening in Afghanistan at the time. Iran uh, down below. Um, and then, you know, above them they had, okay, these other kind of former... Uh, um, of course, fellow constituent members of the Soviet Union, ostensibly quite sort of friendly nations, and yet, you know, frenemies, I think, is, is probably the best way to describe them. Like, you know, they're, they're kind of friendly, but a lot of these Central Asian countries had these sort of weird kind of tensions and rivalries as well. And so I think they must have sort of, the day that independence was thrust upon them, because it was thrust upon them, the president must have just looked around and said, Okay, what do we do, right? Do we do we uh, throw our throw in our lot with uh, Iran? Well, that's not an option. Do we throw in our lot with the other Central Asian guys who we don't really like? That's not an option either. Do we throw in our lot with Russia? Well, no, you know they're the former kind of uh, overlords. Do we throw in our lot with the West, all the way over there? Like, I mean, the West is, might as well be on the moon for all it mattered. They could throw in their lot a little bit with Turkey, but Turkey at that time was not some sort of economic powerhouse by a long shot. Um, so I, I think that they simply thought that, um, from taking a very pragmatic uh, perspective, that if you are neutral, you're not anybody's friend as such, but you're not anybody's enemy either. And that's, you know, the the basic principle of of uh, of Turkmen diplomacy. Nobody's threatening Turkmenistan. Nobody's sanctioning Turkmenistan. All they want to do with Turkmenistan, despite the fact it's one of the world's worst dictatorships, is basically buy their gas and leave them the hell alone.
2: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
1: When we did our recent North Korea piece, we came across many of these same underlying factors that are present in both Turkmenistan and North Korea. What we did find difficult, though, was getting news from someone on the ground. Someone who'd grown up there. Someone who can paint a picture of what it's like living in this desert of contradictions. Well, Luckily for this episode, we turned to a journalist from Turkmenistan. Someone who grew up inside the system. Someone who can give us an inside look into the marble palaces and sprawling gas fields of Ashgabat, the capital of Turkmenistan. So for all that, we turn to our next
2: guest. Part 2. Off the Radar
0: Ashgabat, it's uh, mostly covered by desert. It uh, looks like something like um, in between uh, Dubai and uh, North Korea.
1: Naznazar Nazar grew up in Turkmenistan, It is the former director of the Turkmen Service for Radio Free Europe and has published numerous articles in Turkmenistan for publications like the Washington Post. It is amazing to have Naz on the show, chatting in English, her fifth language. She joins us today.
0: It it did not change much since the Soviet times in terms of development and um, critics say it even got worse because it's uh, one of the most closed countries in the world it's highly secretive the the, the statistics are un highly uh, unreliable independent uh, information uh, is um, suppressed and uh, so it's very strictly uh, from top to down controlled country ruled by president uh, gurban gulyberdi mohammedov there are rumors that he wants his um, son to succeed him, and after that, it would be probably his grandson.
1: So I want to talk about the founder of the country, Niazov, better known as Turkmenbashi. How was he viewed in Turkmenistan?
0: Uh, Niazov came to power uh, during the Soviet era, and he he was the head of the Communist Party of Turkmenistan, so uh, he was appointed by Moscow to power. Official Turkmen media about him that he was t- seen as uh, uh, he was he was projected as a god king. He is our uh, he our leader. Like uh, there is no uh, that uh, there is no other way for another leader than him. Uh, if if is it it was like the propaganda was like the w- world would uh, the Turkmenistan would end with, if uh, when Niyazov would uh, die. So something like that, he was seen very much as a uh, portrait, as god king. Criticism of him was impossible. He was like King Jeon-Un in, in North Korea.
1: So I want to talk about the Ruknama, Nama, a usually purple and green little book of poems written by Turkman Bashi himself. This book was everywhere. When you go for your driving test, the test would be on parts of the Ruknama Nama and how well you memorized it. Even school exams were mostly based on the Rukhnama. Mosques were also instructed to teach the Rukhnama alongside the Quran. But what I want to know is how was this book viewed by Turkmen citizens?
0: Rukhnama was a compulsory education subject in the schools, compulsory education subject in the schools. Uh, Everyone should read it not only in the schools, but also um, even factory. Workers and and I mean um, uh, hospital uh, personnel they should all be able to uh, uh, to remember from uh, to remember the uh, uh, the sections from the Ruhnama and in official ceremonies uh, they should uh, re- uh, read from Ruhnama and things like that and it was uh, said that uh, it uh, became like a sort of uh, Turkmen's uh, second qu- uh, Quran, you know.
1: So let's bring it forward to today and talk about some of Ashgabat's friends. Turkey is home to the largest amount of Turkmen's outside of Turkmenistan, and the two countries have great relations. So why is Turkey and Turkmenistan so close?
0: It dates back to the uh, Niyazov uh, era after Turkmenistan became independent, the, the first companies, um, sorry, among the first companies that made contacts in Turkmenistan were uh, the Turks, the Turkish companies. They were involved in construction in Ashgabat, and uh, they built a lot of hotels, uh, government buildings, and statues, the, the like. There was, uh, although Turkmenistan is uh, risky for investment and for trade. A lot of um, small-level or middle-level companies from Turkey saw a chance uh, for uh, in, uh, engaging with Turkmenistan and went there. And uh, a lot of young Turkmen people not uh, able to find jobs in Turkmenistan. Um, uh, the official uh, unemployment rate is uh, five to 10 per, uh, five, around 5%. But the, the unofficial is like, goes up to 50%. So lots of young Turks went to Turkey to seek jobs and then sent some money home. There is also, of course, it should be mentioned, uh, cultural bonds with Turkey because of uh, the, the uh, Turkmen people are uh, speak Turkic language. And uh, the, the, there were... Uh, It were the Turkmen's who went to uh, minor Asia in the 12th century and um, conquered parts of Anatolia, the the minor Asia. And uh, so there is a historic bond, there is a cultural bond, ethnic bonds with Turkey. So that's why uh, Turkey uh, was uh, one of the first destinations for desperate Turkmen people to find jobs
1: what I want to understand is Turkmenistan still has voting, with the president winning around 95% of the vote each time. So how does voting and campaigning work in a country like Turkmenistan?
0: First of all, they are not real r- 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 competing candidates. They're all... Uh, when pol- when uh, voting take- takes place, they all are all from Berdi party, the candidates. And they're being voted and... Um, uh, The official data says 99% of the voters took place and uh, Berdi Mohamedov won the uh, last elections, winning uh, uh, almost 90% of the vote. And uh, so um, this is like, uh, how to say, uh, confirmation, not really voting. A confirmation. You confirm someone the government wants to be elected, and the people have confirmed and that's it what we have waited from them and uh, the job is done that's like election in turkmenistan there's no really free, uh, no real and free election with opposing candidates no opposition parties are there and uh, the parliament uh, approves each and every decision by uh, berdy Mohamedov, and uh, the laws are passed uh, with uh, 100% of the voting, and uh, that's it. Well, that's the voting in Turkmenistan.
1: So this week we've seen large-scale protests in Turkmenistan, the largest since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, do you think these protests will develop into something bigger or they just a one-off spike?
0: There are scattered protests of a few people. According to independent sources, the government never reports about protests. So uh, what we know about this so far from uh, a few sources is that a few people are protesting about uh, bread and flour shortage, uh, in general food shortage, that affects these regions, the periphery. Uh, Ashgabat, I heard, is uh, better uh, equipped with food because uh, there is the, the... the the government is in the capital, and uh, um, uh, it's it's pretty much better in a better situation than the periphery, but in the provinces, this is there is scarcity of food, and people are suffering from this. And uh, people selling their uh, personal belongings on the market to make income, and a lot of people uh, fled abroad to look for jobs. So uh, there is a widespread poverty in the country and there are now people who are not ready to k- keep silence on this. That's not going to change for the foreseeable future, I think, under Berdy Mohamedov, it certainly won't change.
1: How did a nation with so much gas, fly right under the radar. Being right next to some of the world's geopolitical hotspots like Afghanistan, Iran, Russia, and Azerbaijan, you would assume there'd be a far brighter spotlight on this Central Asian gas giant. Even the government can't decide whether it wants to turn inwards or face the outside world. Like spending billions of dollars on an airport the size of Tel Aviv, but making it so difficult to acquire tourist visas, That they see less than 10,000 people a year due to a closed-off Soviet mentality. For comparison, its direct neighbour Uzbekistan sees 6.8 million tourists a year, but Turkmenistan sees less than 10,000. This is a country who, like many others, put all their eggs in one basket and rode the wave of the gas price to the top, but is now feeling the pinch when it all came crashing down. The Turkmen now owe huge sums of money to China. Tensions are escalating with Iran, and Moscow is heaping pressure upon them in the Caspian. The small, dark corner Ashgabat has been hiding in for decades is quickly shrinking. And to talk more about that, we turn to our next guest.
2: Part 3. All roads
4: lead east. So Turkmenistan remains one of the most Uh, intriguing and enigmatic states, not only in Central Asia, uh, but in the entire world. It's been ruled by two presidents, uh, both quite quirky personalities who have refashioned the state, its bureaucracy, domestic politics, foreign policy uh, into their own image and to prioritize their own domestic, political and personal needs.
1: Alexander Cooley is the director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. He's also a professor of political science at Barnard College and the author of some of the best books on Central Asia, including the hugely popular Dictators Without Borders. And it's great to have Alex back on the show.
4: Turkmenistan has been a very top-down country that has modelled itself, I would say, relatively unsuccessfully on um a Gulf style hydrocarbon producer um that takes revenues from the export, in this case of natural gas and feeds them into the population in the form of subsidized food, energy, housing. And that creates the basis of the social bargain, right? People have basic needs, the state is quite big, um, but uh that means the political system is closed that all dissent is quashed, that there is a real paranoia uh, about any kind of political opposition, independent media. There's real concern about exile groups uh, that live abroad in both Europe uh, and in Turkey. Um, And the system has been relatively stable in that you've seen a relatively smooth succession, and you've seen both of these rulers um, you know, in power for uh, over, uh, over a decade. Um, but the system requires revenue. And I think that's one of the interesting fallouts of COVID with a drop in demand in gas from natural, uh, for, you know, for China, um, whether Turkmenistan is, is, is obtaining the same revenues.
1: So after the transition to republics, regional neighbours like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan began to open their doors to the international community. Turkmenistan never did. Why would they remain so closed in?
4: Um, it made the decision very early on to function in a very managed manner um, and not to open up. And part of that is a bit of Soviet legacy. Part of it is a small population. And with a population of about 6 million people, a perception from early on that they didn't have to open up, that they could just be distributive. Niyasov um, very fancifully um, used to sort of count that many outsiders were looking at um, substantial reserves of natural gas and referring to Turkmenistan as um, natural gas Kuwait. And of course, that now seems, you know, that sound now seems silly. But behind that was the reasoning that if we just pump gas out, um, then we don't actually have to open up politically, economically. Everyone can have basic needs taken care of. Um, and then the state can pursue, in its foreign relations, this kind of touted policy of neutrality. So
1: compared to its neighbors, Turkmenistan is very internationally isolated. You know, it's not part of the Moscow-led CIS or the Beijing-led Shanghai Cooperation Group. So why would it avoid joining these huge multinational organizations like all its other neighbors have?
4: So Nyasa from the very beginning, coined this idea of Turkmen neutrality. And he did it in a few ways, right? One was um, a kind of, you know, refusal to adhere to international norms Um, And, you know, from very early on, he pushed back against, you know, Western criticism of things like human rights practices and governance practices. You know, he never admitted, um, for example, the OSCE election monitors, right, that everyone else was admitting, even Russia, right, even, um, you know, his neighbors in the 1990s. So he did not like that kind of external interference or... Uh, monitoring of his affairs. That was on the one hand. On the other hand, um, in part to justify that, and in order, again, to preserve uh, you know his autonomy, he made a point, as you said, of not joining the CIS, not joining the SCO, even though effectively Turkmenistan sends observers um, and delegates to a lot of these uh, meetings. Um, so as to sort of underscore that point. Now, what's interesting about it is that Turkmenistan, you would think being able to do that was a function of a lack of dependence on Russia, and that wasn't true. In the 1990s, Turkmenistan was wholly dependent on um, this old Soviet era pipeline network, you know, the central piping network in which um, Turkmen gas would go along the grid and be piped effectively westward. And through the 2000s, um, that it would act um, as a supplier via some very shady intermediary trading companies um, to Europe via Ukraine, um, and, and, and and ultimately feeding the, uh, you know, the Gazprom network. But uh, uh, so that wasn't really, uh, you know, the answer, but Moscow seemed okay with these kinds of status, uh, uh, and sort of symbolic plays of, you know, maintaining this neutrality. Um, what became a little thornier for Turkmenistan, um, was in the two thousands, uh, and especially post nine 11 when the U S emerged in the region, um, and there was, um, you know, for a while, um, a rumored American presence in Turkmenistan that um, um, that was logistically supporting the global war on terror. A lot of Central Asian diplomats um, and officials would sort of talk about the old Soviet air base at Marie being used um, for different uh, coalition-led uh, missions into Afghanistan. That was never confirmed on the U.S. side.
1: So let's talk about some of its neighbors. What is the current relationship like between Ashgabat
4: and Tehran? Um, it's a relationship that has gone through um, it, it's been pretty pretty icy uh, for most of the time and has gone through different periods of being you know functional, never really warm, um, that we never saw the kind of, say, economic integration, at the border that you might expect. Um, you know, the main linchpin of the r- relationship has been a, a kind of a natural gas swap agreement. And you know, by background of this, I should say Turkmenistan, because it was so reliant on the Soviet era network that was dominated by Gazprom in Russia, um, it's, its number one foreign policy objective was always to find alternative routes out for its gas. And the first deal it signed, uh, was with Iran, it was a 10 B.C.M. swap deal um, through which Turkmen gas would go to uh, northern part of Iran, and then Iran would export gas um, that it had uh, produced domestically elsewhere on behalf of Turkmenistan. Um, but you never got the kind of extensive, um, you know, extensive economic ties, you know, cultural ties, people-to-people ties. Um, so the Iranian relationship is OK, it, 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 but it, it is subject to um, also complaints about shirking and cheating on the arrangement.
1: So let's move from the Turkmen's southern border to its western borders on the Caspian Sea. There has been huge tensions escalating with Russia in these waters. So why is Moscow and Ashgabat fighting over the Caspian Sea?
4: Yeah, this all goes back to having autonomy... Um, you know autonomy of action to ensure um, you know control over you know the resources that are delineated out within the Caspian and especially the offshore resources. You know I think you know an important thing to to remember about uh, the Turkmen's in terms of you know their kind of energy outlook is they even have um, refused to do any production sharing agreements um, with. You know, external investors save, you know, the important exception of CNPC, um, which they, they they set up one important one, um, during the financial crisis.
1: After Turkmenistan turned its back on Gazprom and the Russian pipelines heading west, they worked on pipelines heading east. The first and much larger of the pipelines goes through Uzbekistan, into Kazakhstan, and then into western China, where it supplies about 30% of China's total gas. The other one, known as the TAVI pipeline, goes from Western Turkmenistan into Afghanistan through Pakistan and into India, supplying gas to each of these countries along the way through. So which pipeline do you think is more important to Ashgabat?
4: Well, without a doubt, uh, you know, the most important pipeline, um, and, and, and really I would say the most important pipeline in the region is the Central Asia-China um, pipeline that originated in Turkmenistan. And what's really fascinating about this is that, you know, throughout the late 1990s and early 2000s, policy analysts um, were viewing the key to sort of Turkmenistan's um, potentially, you know, energy autonomy as being rooted in the West, right? And so there were sort of talks about potential new trans Caspian pipeline that would be built. Um, You know, there was lobbying campaigns, especially in the West and Western think tanks um, to ensure that such a pipeline would bypass Russia and would, you know, um, be sort of an equivalent to the Baku Jehan pipeline um, um, that was sort of constructed in the 1990s. Uh, But then all of a sudden in 2006, after scoping out the place, um, the Chinese announced that they would begin a construction on a pipeline and CNPC that would um, um, take uh, uh, Turkmen gas from these fields in uh, the east of the country and um, route them through this network in Uzbekistan, in Kazakhstan, and have it joined um, the Chinese natural gas uh, pipeline um, out in its west. And what's remarkable about this was that it was this was built in three years' time. In 2009, it was done. It was inaugurated. Um, That initially, uh, a line A, a line B were built. uh, Then a line C, uh, different sort of spurs feeding it from Kazakhstan and so forth. Uh, And now a line D, on and off, uh, on and off, on again. Um, That will uh, route around and also include... Um, um um Kyrgyzstan's a transit country to access some Tajik fields what you have is effectively Turkmenistan as the main node of an entire gas export and regional distribution system right because you're getting gasification of certain Kazakh cities too along this so after all this back and forth about creating western options for Turkmenistan you know in Central Asia the Chinese came in and very quickly just created these, uh, you know, very new facts on the ground with China, Central Asia. And, you know, back in April 2009, um, in the wake of, um, you know, the great financial crisis there and reduced natural gas demand in Europe, um, you know, the, the Russians sort of turned off the taps um, of um Uh, on the Turkmens and, you know, essentially, uh, uh, you know, there's there's some speculation as to what exactly happened. But part of the pipeline uh, blew up either for a technical reason uh, because it wasn't utilized. Um, But at that point, Turkmenistan made the wholesale switch from being completely dependent on Russia to being then dependent on this new network that came online that year. And it really hasn't looked back since um, it's been piping this gas they did over 30 uh, billion cubic meters last year. Uh, most of its export revenue now is a function of that. I'll say one more thing about that and then I'll address Tappy um, in 2008 um, when things were, were really bad, um, you know, well, last time you had a financial crisis, uh, the Turkmen's did a, a deal with CNPC um, that allowed You know, the company, um, a PSA uh, into the East, but also kind of staged a couple of $4 billion emergency loans that would be um, repaid um, over a couple of decades um, with these sort of natural gas exports. And so essentially, you know, China would say, you know, it just made a good investment, one of these energy barter deals as it had in other parts of the world, made sort of similar thing with, you know, the Kazakhs and in Ecuador and, um, you know, um, Brazil and, and, and also, also with Russia. Um, but the fact that what Beijing did was keep the Turkmen, uh, economy afloat became effectively a lender of last resort, um, by giving this advanced sort of prepayment, um, this investment. And so. Um, that enabled Ashgabat um, to stay on its feet. It didn't have to turn. Actually, it couldn't turn to the IMF (laughs) because it wasn't a member in good standing. Uh, It was uh, supposedly at the time uh, looking into negotiating some private loans from from Western and German banks. Um, But uh, it didn't have to do that. Um, And so China not only became an investor, it became a kind of a regional hegemonic patron, right? Uh, Coming to keep it afloat. So um, the Chinese relationship means a lot in a lot of different contexts and the pipelines at the center of that. TAPI, in some ways, has been the kind of new geopolitical unicorn um, that's been pushed, especially by the West, um, to try and give Turkmenistan that other vector, that other option. I think for the Turkmen's, ideally, TAPI would not only bring about A different source of revenue uh, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, sort of gas reaching, uh, you know, different kinds of customers uh, and different markets um, and creating this sort of Southern uh, vector. Um, But uh, but would also potentially give it some leverage over Beijing, um, over pricing, um, over terms. Uh, You know, we don't know a lot about. know, the nature of these contracts, but by, but by, by everything that comes out and reported, they're, they're really favorable, um, to Beijing. So that that's, that's, that was the plan anyway. And of course the constituencies that wanted to develop Afghanistan and see it become more integrated, um, you know, enhance its connectivity was the buzzword. we also pushing this. And so you had, you know, American advisors, you know, at the center of sort of TAPI, um, um, pushing the project, uh, but you know the the pipeline is still uh, delayed. Um, there are um, you know a lot of you know technical legal issues. Um, but I think the, the you know the bottom line in understanding Turkmenistan's attitude towards TAPI is that it just wants to sell its gas at the border, and it wants everyone else to take care of the details, <laughs> right? In terms of sort of transit transportation legal fees, um, and these kinds of things. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, potentially in a world of sort of functioning states and a cooperative region, um, you know, TAPI could become, you know, an important option in Ashgabat's sort of foreign policy, both energy and broader foreign policy profile. But at the moment, it's China, China, China. And the, uh, the you know the Central Asia China pipeline is really the main I would say lifeline of the country.
1: So as Turkmenistan turns towards China, what is the relationship like between Turkmenistan and their old masters in Moscow?
4: Um, it's been strained as with other countries as the other neighbors we've talked about. Um, I you know we know that um, you know Berdi was incensed at. Um, you know, the kind of, you know, the, 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 the hardball closing tactics that the Russians exercised, um, in 2000, uh, in, you know, in the 2000s, um, I, I would say it's, it's a little more complex than that. Um, I think, you know, the Turkmen's have always, um, behind the scenes consulted with the Russians. Um, they've always, um, kept them abreast of sort of, um, you know, security developments, um, you know, they've tried to reassure them, um, when it comes to dealings, both with the west of the United States and the Chinese, uh, and, you know, um, you know, the Russians used to man, um, the border with Afghanistan, right, used to have sort of a Russian border guard that was. Um, as in Tajikistan, that was sort of phased out, um, and and they were placed with Turkmen's. Now there have been reports of more uh, cooperation with Russian troops and Russian advisors, and especially concerns about um, the potential for um, you know a militant spillover on the Turkmen border. You know, instability in bordering regions in Afghanistan is something that um, is of, you know, um, you know, great concern to authorities. And, you know, of course, you know, the, you know, uh, dealings with ISIS, even, um, sort of, you know, the chasing of certain ISIS factions, um, into Turkmen territory and then back. Uh, and so, um, you know, recognizing that Russia is the security guarantor, um, you know, there, you know, there've been talks and some informal kinds of arrangements there. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, Turkmenistan is not that central um, to Russia, um, you know, beyond, you know, Russia's own sort of self-perception as the regional hegemon and security guarantor. Uh, and, you know, given the fact that, um, you know, Russia's you know, the profile of Russia's own gas business has has has, has changed over the last 10 years to Turkmenistan isn't this kind of, you know, critical kind of top off supplier that would mop up some of the excess demand um, from Europe that you saw sort of in the 2000s. Um, But, um, you know, of course, uh, many in the bureaucracy still speak Russian. Um, There's still a lot of respect um, for Russia, a lot of sort of accommodation of its views. Um, And I think sort of, you know, honestly, post 2014, You know, Russian actions in Crimea um, also sent some alarm bells ringing um, in Ashgabat too, and 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 they wanted to ensure you know relatively um, you know stable and 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 productive relations. Um, So, uh, I wouldn't say Turkmenistan is as much of a political client um, to Russia say as Kyrgyzstan is. Right, we can say Kyrgyzstan is um, really dependent on Russia in a lot of different ways. You don't have the same kind of vector of migration, right, in Russia that you do um, from countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and even Uzbekistan. Um, but I think there's a, a widespread recognition uh, that Russia will continue to be an important player.
1: So where do you see Turkmenistan going in the next 10 to 15 years?
4: Well, I think, you know, it's at, at, at some point um, we're going to see... You know, some other type of regime transition. Um, I don't think that there's a lot of appetite, um, you know, to overthrow Buried Muhammadov. I think you know there is a kind of a sense of, um, you know, all the you know all the bureaucrats are, you know, in this together and and want to keep the you know the ship um, sort of afloat um, and going. I think the real kind of challenge is whether they take some actual steps to integrate more with the world, right? Or how long can they keep this? um, um, You know, this kind of very selective, outward facing um, um, set of, you know, deals with the world. So, um, you know, my own, you know, my own view on this is that you're not going to have any kind of, um, you know, radical change. Um, I think that even if you were to have some sort of regime transition, it would be a relatively sort of similar kind of playbook with, 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 you know, with with, uh, more of an outward, um, you know, stylistically, um, you know, more kind of friendly face. The way Bertie Mohamedov himself was sort of initially in 2007, 2008, he was getting a lot of goodwill and potential engagement. But, you know, I don't think that, you know, the fundamental geopolitical orientation of Turkmenistan um, is going to change. Now, some of the wild cards that might change that are um, the following. Um, If you have some sort of economic shock or collapse in China, right, that really ruptures that trading relationship. I think that would become a real disruptor in Turkmenistan, maybe catastrophically so. Uh, I think a regime change in Iran would have some interesting implications. I think you know the Turkmens would be really concerned about that, um, but perhaps that could offer um, um, you know the possibility of um, you know a, a sort of a, a much more kind of robust set of economic relationships and especially sort of the sh- sanctions regime um, were uh, were to be lifted. Um, you know, and then of course, what happens in Afghanistan is going to be of real concern too. So I think looking forward, you know, you know over sort of ten years time, there's a lot of reasons to be paranoid in Turkmenistan. And there's not a lot of reasons to be optimistic in Turkmenistan. Um, and you know, unfortunately, I think they're in a you know in a tough neighborhood with neighbors that have real complications. And rather than proactively help shape these events and deal with them, I think the incentive structure, especially given their own domestic, economic, and increasing social problems, is to just wall themselves off and try to hermetically seal themselves from these regional goings-on.
1: My last question for you. Is the future of Turkmenistan towards Beijing, towards Washington, or towards Moscow?
4: I think without a doubt the future goes to Beijing, the present goes to Beijing. I think this is a relationship that really supplanted Moscow overnight. And, you know, it's also extremely important for the Chinese in the sense that, um, you know, they have locked into China, they have locked Turkmenistan into long-term contracts and relationships, um, you know, a very high percentage. Um, I don't know exactly what it is. I think sometimes it's even sort of 60 of 70s or so the Turkmen, or, or rather uh, overseas uh, 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 piped gas comes from effectively, you know, the Turkmen pipeline. Um, you know, Chinese also get gas from Myanmar um, and some other places. But, you know, if you look year on year, and this is something that, that shocks a lot of observers, you'll see Turkmenistan is easily in the top five of countries that are most dependent on China economically, and you say, "Well, you know, how can that be? You know, Turkmenistan doesn't have a border with China. It's not a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization." But again, it, it lets you know how central this 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 gas dimension is. So, um, yes, um, the patron now is Beijing. Um, the uh, public goods provider is essentially Beijing. The lender of last resort is Beijing. And, you know, I think this, this crisis um, poses, I think, a real um, or, you know, a, a really interesting question, um, especially uh, to authorities in China, too. Are they going to be willing to extend another helping hand to Ashgabat? Are they going to be willing to restructure some terms, maybe give them another loan? What will they demand in return? Um, you know, I think there's a sense that you know the, the the levers that they have over Ashgabat um, make Ashgabat actually particularly vulnerable, I think, to sort of Chinese demands now, um, especially in this in, in this climate, and especially given the fear that uh, China is going or has requested a reduction in overall uh, piping volume um, from from the network because of the economic or sort of slowdown. Um, So I think beyond that, I think what the Turkmens would like to see is a set of balanced relationships, not excluding Moscow. Moscow would be part of it. Um, The Gulf especially would be part of it. I think there's real appetite for investment uh, from the UAE. Um, uh, You know, there would, I think, be, um, you know, partnerships um, with, um, um, you know, India and Pakistan, obviously, through TAPI, but also some of the other, um, you know, Asian countries, um, you know, Japan, um, South Korea, um, you know, keep the kind of, you know, construction contracts and relationships with, you know, with Turkey going, um, you know, and some of the economic links, you know, there would be kind of multiple patrons. But at the end of the day, when you're dependent on one export, it's that country that calls the shots. And... You know, my sense is that Ashgabat is locked into a dependency, and frankly, uh, a client status to Beijing for the foreseeable future.
1: Turkmenistan is in a rough neighborhood. If Afghanistan balls over, many of the fighters will pour over the border into Turkmenistan, a country already very fragile. Relations with Iran must be trodden lightly, as the Turkmen capital is only 10 kilometers from the Iranian border, and the Iranians certainly have the armed forces to cripple the Turkmens if they want to. Russia wants all of the gas trade with Europe to itself, to continue its monopoly and its hold on Central and Southern Europe. So Moscow works to block the Caspian and forever prevent a pipeline that will allow the Turkmens to sell Europe the gas it so desperately needs and finally bring competition to the Russian gas market. And with the way the Turkmen army is at the moment, the way west is likely blocked forever. So east it turns, towards Beijing and New Delhi. The trouble with New Delhi, though, is that building a pipeline there relies on a stable pipeline through war-torn Afghanistan and some of the most unstable parts of Pakistan, all of which are likely to sabotage or steal parts of the gas for themselves. But what choice do they have? For Turkmenistan to sell everything to just one client, China, it means that China sets the prices, China sets the demand, and China dictates the future of Turkmenistan. The Turkmen have tried for decades to take orders from no one, but now they take orders from just one, Beijing. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We had a record listenership last month. And once again, it was thanks to you guys liking and sharing all of our stuff. From the team here at The Red Line, thank you again. If you want to support the show, you can visit our Patreon. Our Patreons get transcripts of the show, book recommendations, live Q&As myself and the guests, as well as the ability to suggest topics for the show. We try to give back as much as we can to our amazing Patreons. And they're the reason this show keeps going. You can support the show on social media by liking us. We're available on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all the other platforms under at TheRedLinePod. And you can follow me on Twitter personally at MikeHilliardOz, Oz for Australia. Another big thanks goes out to this week's guests. Pina Ledin and Eurasianet have always been one of my main sources of news for this region of the world. Peter being the editor has his finger right on the pulse, and it was great to get him on the program. You can find Peter on Twitter at Peter underscore Leonard or follow Eurasianet on at Eurasianet. Naz gave an amazing insight into what it's like being from Turkmenistan, and she's been a great to have on the show. English is her fifth language, and she not only nailed the interview, but also gave a great Turkmen perspective that not a lot of people get to hear. You can follow her work for Radio Free Europe at RFERL on Twitter. Alex Cooley came on the show in January for our piece on Kyrgyzstan, and I highly recommend you check that out as well, and it was amazing to have him on again. His book, Dictators Without Borders, was easily one of my favourite books from three years ago, and was the main reason I booked a trip to go research from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. His new book, Exit from Hegemony, is out now, and if it's anything near as good as the last one he released, it will be near the top of my reading list again. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Cooly on Eurasia, and we hope to have him back on the show for a third time soon. Once again, a thank you goes out to Mark Spencer for providing the additional vocals for the piece we couldn't do it without Mark. Another thanks goes out to Nick Munch for helping write, prepare, and research the stories. Nick has become a fantastic asset to the team, and we're very lucky to have him. We also had Joseph Hawthorne join the team this week to help with some of the editing. We look forward to working more with Joe and we're thrilled to have him aboard. Once again, a thank you to you for listening to the program. It really does mean the absolute world to me to see all the listens, the Twitter DMs I get and the feedback we see from the show. We'll be back with another episode in just a fortnight's time. But until then, thank you and good night.